Hey guys, how you doing? Good, good to be back with you guys. It's actually been a long time since uh, I've actually got to speak with you. Uh, I, first of all, we just had the break and all that stuff, but also, oh, hey, are we recording this just through this thing? Okay, sweet, good, wonderful. It's been so long, I forgot how we record these things. So, uh, but yeah, I actually, the last time I was supposed to get to speak, I had like a family funeral that I had to go to, and so it's been months since I've had a chance to be able to be up here in front of you guys, and I'm glad to get to share a little bit with you uh, tonight. Before we jump in, here's what I want to do, a little bit of get to know you time, all right? I, I want you to take just a couple minutes, share with the person next to you one fact about yourself that people may not know, okay? One fact that people may not know. So, you know, you do like the two truths and a lie, and you always try to use like a truth that's kind of like most people would never guess about you to keep people kind of on their toes and stuff. One of those truths, all right? Share one of those facts with the people next to you. Go. Uh, here is here's, uh, mine. Uh, actually, I have a, no, it wasn't a Skittle issue, it was a Starburst issue that kind of connected to mine. Uh, and, and as I am colorblind, okay? Uh, a lot of you guys, uh, a lot of you guys know that, some of you didn't. The Starburst thing, I actually once reached or looked into a bag and told somebody, never mind, they're all yellows, when in fact it was just a bag full of pink and red Starbursts. Uh, so, yeah, I am colorblind. And and, and colorblind, obviously, it doesn't mean, well, for some people, like a very small percentage, it means you can't see any color, just like monochromatic, gray, everything. That's not me. Uh, it just means that I don't see colors very well, and a lot of them kind of blend together and bleed together. And, and it has caused some issues, not just with like Starburst, but uh, with like stoplights, for example. Uh, red and green sometimes kind of look alike to me. Uh, and I did not realize this very much, how much I depended on uh, the, the spot, right? Like, so the placement, green is at the bottom all the time. And I didn't realize that I was depending on that a lot until we did construction on Perkins Road and they turned all the stoplights this way. Uh, and so, and those can be, I mean, I can usually like give me like two seconds of looking at it and I can tell, but sometimes you don't got two seconds. Uh, and so I just do a lot of watching everybody else. Okay, we're stopping apparently. Okay, that's what we're doing here. Uh, so that happens. I also like clothes shopping gets a little weird. I actually, I was just, I was in Ireland this last week. I got to go there on a trip. And while I was there, I wanted to get some like stuff for my family. And, and one of the things that they're real famous for their wool. They got a lot of sheep. And so I was going to get these wool hats for my daughters. And I talked to my wife and uh, she's like, okay, Ella would want a pink one and Hadley would want a blue one. And I'm like, great. And then I hang up and I look at the wall and I'm like, that doesn't help me now. Uh, so I literally have to go up to people in the store. And if I'm thinking, then I, I make sure to kind of preclude stuff with, you know, hey, I'm colorblind. Can you tell me what color this is? Sometimes I'm not actually thinking and I just walk up to people. And I'm like, what color is this? Uh, and <laughs> they look at me like, Am I in a Sesame Street episode? What is going on here? Like, uh, so those things happen. Those are, those are issues. Now, here's the deal. I was not always colorblind. This is something that has actually just happened in like the last 10, 12, 13 years. Uh, for most of my life, I could see fine. And I know that because uh, I've always had bad eyesight. So I would go to the optometrist all the time. And they always do the little colorblind test, right, where they show you the numbers in the, in the circle, right? And you look at that and you're like, how is this even a test? Like, it, clearly that's a 12. Clearly that's a 3. What is, you know what I mean? And then like a couple years ago, they showed that to me. And I was like, 
is this real? Are you pranking me right now? Because I couldn't see any of them. Uh, but but I, like I said, we didn't know this. And so there was this period of time where, where I was, I, I assume, I don't think it happened all at once, slowly going colorblind, where we weren't realizing this. And it led to some like weird situations that we didn't know how to like, didn't know how to make sense of or explain exactly what was happening. Like the time that I got up uh, to preach in there on a Sunday morning in Sunnybrook, and, and it was St. Patrick's Day. And I got up and I said, hey, good morning, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Wore my green shirt for you guys. And people gave me this kind of weird look. Uh, just kind of, what? You know, and I got off the stage later, and my wife was like, uh, that shirt is blue. And so <laughs> some of those weird things happened. Uh, there, was, there was a while back, I was hanging out at my brother's house, uh, and we were, playing, uh, we were playing FIFA together. This was, this was a while back. It was FIFA 12, all right? We're playing FIFA 12. And, and so we're sitting there playing, and, and we decided to play on the same team, which is fun. But when you're on the same team, you obviously, you don't know, you can't tell the difference between you because you have the same jerseys and all that stuff. And so the way they mark the differences, at least in FIFA 12, is they would put these little colored dots above you. Red and a blue dot, I think, are the two dot colors. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Gray and gray are the two dot colors that they put above <laughs> you, right? But we're playing this game, and I, like, I was worthless at this game because I would think that I had the ball and I would be running towards the goal when in reality I would be somewhere off screen, just kind of running over into a corner, out into the stands. Or I would be waiting for my brother to pass the ball to me the whole time and it turns out I was the one with the ball and just standing there and the defense would come up and steal it from me. Or I kept switching away from players on defense thinking I was switching to them because I could not tell the difference between his player and mine. And again, I didn't know I was colorblind in this moment. I just knew something about this wasn't making sense and it didn't work and I learned something really simple but kind of profound about video games on that night and that is that it is hard to do well if you do not know who you are. It is hard to succeed in video games. It is hard to win. It is hard to do anything right if you do not know who you are. That's actually my message in a nutshell tonight. Uh, what is true in video games is true in life. That if you do not know who you are, it is hard to live well. It is hard to live the kind of life you were designed for if you do not know who you are. Because our lives, our actions, our, um, our way of living flows out of our identity, who we are. And many of us, most of us in this world, don't know who we are. And honestly, a lot of us even in this room struggle with who we are. So we've been walking through the book of Exodus this year. That's kind of where we've been planting and, and going all the way through this very important book in the Bible that reveals a lot about God and his character and what he's like as he interacts with his people. Tonight, we're not going to do that. Tonight, I want to kind of press pause, and I want to take just a little bit of time to talk about this really important thing, uh, this really important issue of identity. So tonight we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. I just want to kick us off there this semester, and then we'll jump back into Exodus next, uh, next week. So we're going to be in Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. You can go there in your Bible if you want. It'll be on the screen. As you're going there, let me just give you a little bit of context for this book, okay? <coughs> so most of the Bible, 
especially like all of the Old Testament, all the stuff up until Jesus comes, most of it is about God's interaction with this particular people group, with this particular nation, that is the nation of Israel, or the Hebrew people, or the Jewish people, okay? And, and most of it is centered around that. Exodus is about God taking these, like, nobody slave people um, who were enslaved in Egypt and rescuing them and bringing them out of slavery and then making them his own special people. And he makes a covenant with them and he gives the law to them and he gives them a special land, the promised land. And then he gives, he sends them the prophets so that they will give them the scriptures and all these things are happening. And he even sends his own son through this people. The people of Israel have this special and unique relationship with God. But the idea from the very beginning was never that God would bless the people of Israel just for their own sake. The idea was that he would bless them and then use them to be a blessing to the world around them. Use them to be able to bring the truth and the knowledge of God that they have to the world around them. And, and you're, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that next week, so I don't want to get too much into that. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that idea next week. The, the thing you need to know, though, is that it never really happened. Uh, that they, instead of extending that blessing to the world, they often kind of hoarded the blessing to themselves. Instead of being a light to the world, to the nations around them, oftentimes they just tried really hard to be just like the nations around them. And they rarely were ever like reaching out to others to try to bring them into this thing that God was doing. And so in the biblical perspective and from the Jewish perspective, for most of this book, like I said, all the way up through the Old Testament, all the way up through Jesus, there were essentially two people groups. There were the Jewish people group and there were the Gentiles. The Jewish people who were God's covenant people who belonged to God and everybody else. Those who were spiritually on the inside and those who were on the outside. These two people groups, okay? Most of our time in Exodus is talking about this people group. Tonight, I want to talk about this one. Tonight, I want to talk about the Gentiles, the Ephesians. They were part of that outside people group. They were part of the people who, who did not know God, who did not have the law, who did not have the scriptures. And Ephesians was written in A.D. 60, so about 30 years after Jesus, by the Apostle Paul to this people group who has recently come to know Christ, who has recently come to be Christians. And, and so we're about to read Paul's words to these Ephesians to explain what their life is like now. Okay, so chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what it says. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, here's one of the interesting things about the book of Ephesians. Quick drink real quick. Okay, in the first half of the book of Ephesians, there are almost no commands. There are almost no imperative statements. There is nothing that Paul tells them to do. He only wants to tell them what God has done for them. That's what he does for the first three chapters. After that, he'll start to talk about this is how you live. But for the first three chapters, he only gives one command in the entire first half of the book, and we just read it right there. Verse 11. The one command is not actually do anything or live anything. It's simply this, remember. One thing he wants them to do at the beginning, remember. Remember what you used to be. Remember 
what you were before Jesus. That's actually not talked about a whole lot. Most of the time in the Bibles, we're, we're talked about uh, remember what God has done for you, uh, focus on what you have now in God, look ahead to the future. But there's a couple points where it talks about remembering what you used to be before God. And there is something that I think is actually really valuable about this, to be able to look back and know what I was so that I can better grasp all that he has done for me. And what the Ephesians were before Jesus, as we said, is outsiders. They were called the uncircumcised. That was like a derogatory term that the, the insiders would use about them because circumcision, as weird as it may sound to us today, was like the primary identity marker for the Jewish people. That was like the covenant. There were like two or three big ones, that and Sabbath and dietary restrictions. Those were like the three big things during this day and age that marked them as belonging to God. So when you called them the uncircumcised, you were saying those that don't belong to God, those that got no business being a part of what we are. And this is what they used to be called, the uncircumcised by those who were on the inside is what he says to them. And, he's, and Paul will list these five things about their condition. Did you see those? In verse 12, he says five specific things about their condition before Jesus. First, they were without Christ. Second, they were excluded from citizenship of Israel. Third, they were foreigners to the promise. Fourth, they were without hope. And fifth, they were without God. Now, I'm not sure how much of those five things the Ephesians actually recognized. Like, I don't know how much they cared. Oh, I wish we could be citizens of Israel. I don't think they really knew at that time how important that might have been. I don't think they ever thought, man, I wish I wasn't a foreigner to the, to the, promise, or to the covenant promises, those kinds of things. Most of those things they probably did not even feel or experience deep inside of them. But I, but I can almost guarantee you that there was one. One of those five that when they sat in their rooms at night and the day was over and time was standing still and they just had a moment of silence to think on their life, I'm sure there's one thing that came in their minds a lot. They all knew they were without hope. They did not have hope. And maybe they knew that that was connected to that other one, which is that they were without God. Maybe you know that feeling all too well. I don't know, maybe it's why you're here tonight. Maybe over Christmas break you had a moment where you had that exact feeling, this recognition of being without God and without hope. And the truth is you went into college thinking things were going to go a lot different than they did, thinking you were going to do a lot better than you did, and somewhere along the, the line you took a left turn and things went poorly and kind of spiraled well beyond what you expected them to go. And you found yourself in places that you did not expect to be and doing things you did not expect to do. And you laid in your bed one night over Christmas break going, I don't know how I got here. You felt it without God and without hope. And maybe that's why you're here. If so, man, I'm so glad you are. You've come to the right place. There's a number of good places you could have gone, a number of great ministries or churches that you could have gone to, but I'm glad that you came to hang out with us tonight, and I hope that you find a place here for you to belong, and I hope that you will find what you're looking for, but here's something that you need to know. If you feel this inside, without hope, without God, what you need is not a weekly God fix. 
What you need is not to add some sort of spiritual element to what you've already got going. That's not going to fix anything. That's not going to change things. What you need, if you are without hope, is to have a real encounter with and a real entrusting of your life to a very specific person. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those first five words of verse 13 are the hinge point of this entire text. But now in Christ Jesus. This is what you were. It's what you used to be. Without hope, without God, excluded from citizenship, not a part of the promises without Christ, but now in Christ Jesus. At that point, in those words, everything switches. Everything about you and your condition, Paul says to them, changed because of Jesus. And everything that can be said about the Gentiles, everything that can be said about the Ephesians from here on out is a result of their relationship with Jesus. In fact, I want you to pay attention to how often you will see the phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in him, or in his body, or in his flesh, or with Christ Jesus. Everything kind of, uh, everything about the Ephesians is going to revolve around their relationship with Jesus. It's all a result of what he has done for them. Here specifically, he says that though they used to be far from God because their sins, like, like everyone else in the entire world, our sins separate us from God and they make us far from him. That's why we're without God. That's why we're without hope, because of our sin. But he says that Jesus, by his own blood, by his own sacrifice for them, has brought them near has brought them to the God that they, have, that they were made for. When they laid on their bed at night, aching for something, Jesus gave them that something through his sacrifice and bringing them back to God. Here's what we read next in verse 14. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. So he says this at the very beginning. He himself is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you were to travel to Jerusalem during this day and age when Paul is writing these words, you would come to it, and you would go to this place called the Temple Mount because it sat up on a hill. And when you get to the, the top and the center, that's where the great temple was standing, Herod's temple that had been built. It took years, decades to build. In fact, I think it was still a little bit under construction at this time, but it was this glorious, magnificent thing. And then as you begin to move outward from the temple, there were a series of courts that kind of moved out concentrically from the temple. In fact, I think we got a picture of it here. Let's see. Yes, okay, I don't know how well you can see this, but that kind of like, that, that dark black shape there, that's the view of the temple from above. And then right there next to it, you have the court of the priests. This is the place that only the priests from the tribe of Levi, Levi were allowed to go. No one else was allowed to go beyond this, uh, into that area. This is the area where the sacrifices were often made there on the altar. And then if you were to move a few steps, like there were actually like some stairs that would go down, and a little further out, you would come to this little thin strip that's right there, kind of to the left of the court of women. I don't know if you can read it, but it would say the court of Israel. Okay? And the court of Israel, or the court of the Israelites, was specifically for the Israelite men. This is where the men could come to worship. 
and, and they could go and they could uh, sing and they could pray and they could do all their stuff right there. And then if you move down a few more stairs and several feet out, you come to that largest area, the court of women. And this is where most of the activity took place. This is where the offerings were brought in and this is where um, a lot of the people would gather for some of the big kind of uh, ceremonies and that kind of stuff because it was the largest space there in the area. And so the Israelite men could be there and the Israelite women could be there and everybody could be there. But then if you were to go many steps down and you could see the little staircases that go down from, the, from the, that rectangle. If you go a number of stairs, I think it was like 22 stairs down and way further back, you come to this last court. That was the court of the Gentiles. Um, and it was surrounded or between the court of women and the court of the Gentiles was a five foot thick wall that ran all the way around. And that was if you were a Gentile and you were interested in the God of Israel, and you were interested in worshiping him, and you thought he might actually be the one true God, you could come, but this was as far as you could go. And actually, all the way around that wall, there were these signs that were engraved into the side of the wall in Greek, which would have been the main language of the day, and especially for the Gentiles. We've actually unearthed, archaeologists unearthed one of those signs. I think I've got a picture of that right there, okay? Um, and this sat along, there were a number of these uh, signs that sat all the way along the wall. What that says in Greek, I'll make sure I'm reading it here so I get it, get the wording just right. Uh, Uh, The wording on there says this, let no foreigner enter within the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. If you cross this line, we're going to kill you. It was a strong message to anyone who would go there just to make sure they truly knew you have no part in this God and you have no part in us. You can come watch. You can come do your little worship thing from a distance, but you have no part in all of this. There are a number of scholars who think that Paul actually has this wall and this sign in mind when he writes Ephesians 2.14. But now, Christ Jesus in his body has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. There There is no more wall separating you from the people of Israel, Ephesians, and there is no more wall pushing your access away from God. You are just as welcome into this as all the rest of us. Not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus in his own body has gotten rid of that sign. Jesus in his own body has broken down that wall and made access and made a way for all of these people. And what he has done is he has taken, Paul says, Jesus takes these two people groups who could not be further apart, who could not be more different, who could not have more tension between them. And he's made them not just equal. He's made them not just Uh, get along. He's made them one. He's made them, like these two people groups, he's made them one completely new people group. This is not my main point tonight. Not the whole thing, but I want to just take a couple minute tangent just to say this because I think it's an important and overlooked aspect of the gospel that when God saves us, when he saves people, he does not just reconcile us to himself. He reconciles us to others. He reconciles us to one another. He did not just save you. This is really important. Did not just save you to bring you into a personal relationship with himself. He brought you to bring, or he saved you to bring you into his family, to make you a part of something bigger, to make you a part of his church. The Christian life is not an individual faith journey. It is meant to be lived in community. It is meant to be lived as a part of the church, which means if you are not doing that, if you are not living your life integrated with the church, you are not living the full Christian life. 
not as it is described by the Bible, not as it was meant to be taking place as Jesus placed it forth for us. And that reconciliation that happens, happens not just with people who are like me. It happens with people who are completely different than me. Really good words to remember as we move into an election year. A year that I guarantee, let's just, let's just say it, we know it, is going to be full of divisiveness and a lot of people angry at each other and a lot of people shouting. That should not be the case amongst us because the reality is if you are a Republican, you have more in common with a Christian Democrat than you do with any non-Christian Republicans. The reality is if you are white and a Christian you have a deeper connection to any black or Asian or, or Latino Christians than you do any other white non-Christians. That you've been made one with those people. That you are part of the same group. And this is a crucial part of the gospel that often gets overlooked. That, that we are not just reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another. Okay, not my main point. Tangent over. Let's move to the rest. Paul says here that you've got these two people groups that would have been defined by all these cultural and religious identity markers, uh, circumcision and Sabbath laws and all those things. And he says that actually God, uh, that Jesus has gotten rid of all those things, those things that mark you as more spiritual and, and more important, all those things. He's gotten rid of those things. He's made them not important, and he's made this new people group. Actually, some commentators call this the third race. That, they, that there were kind of two major races that people consider back there, Jews and Gentiles, and now Jesus has created a third one, Christians, uh, Christ followers, the Jesus people, this third new group of people that, that, that are now defined by him and not by anything else. Let's read verses 17 through 18. It says this, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he says, he came and proclaimed peace to those who were, to you who were far away and those who are near. The, the you, let's make sure we're clear on everything. The you who were far away, that's the Ephesians, that's Gentiles. The those who were near, that's Jewish people. The Jewish people were nearer to God because they had the scriptures. They were trying to follow those things. They had the temple. They were going to worship him there, those kinds of things. So they were nearer. And yet, it says that Jesus came and preached peace to both of them because both of them needed the gospel. Both of them come to God through the same means, and that is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus came and preached to them, which is actually an interesting statement, by the way, because Jesus did not come and preach to them. Jesus never traveled to Ephesus during his time on the earth to preach to these people. So why does Paul say that he preached to them? Because Paul says anytime the gospel comes and is preached to people, Jesus is speaking to them. Jesus is speaking to you tonight. Jesus is calling for you tonight. And I hope that you get to hear those words as he, as he speaks out the truth about himself. But, but he says that he came and he preached to both those who were near and those who were far to make a way for both of them to come to him. And through Jesus, both of them have been granted a brand new kind of access to God. You know, we talked about how that dividing wall around the Gentile partition or whatever, that that was torn down figuratively through Jesus. But there was one divider that was actually torn literally when Jesus died, Right? which was the veil in between the rest of the temple and the most holy place, the place where the presence of God was said to have dwelled. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain tore from top to bottom, signifying 
that now there is nothing to separate people from the presence of the one true God because his blood, because his sacrifice has made a way for the forgiveness of our sins that we can now come and belong to him. And when we are drawn to the Father, it is there that we find, that we discover our one true identity. And what is that identity? That's what we're going to talk about after the break. We'll take a couple minutes, stretch your legs, grab a drink, and we'll come back and jump into that in a second. Uh, identity, one of the most uh, important things, one of the most critical things you could ever do in your life is nail down that thing, identity, uh, to grasp who you are, figure out uh, what defines you. The question is, how do you find out what defines you? How do you find out uh, who you truly are. How do you get to a point of knowing that? There's this guy named Trevin Wax, and he's written a book called Rethinking Yourself. He says that uh, basically throughout the history of the world, there have been three primary ways to go about discovering identity, to, to go about finding who you are and then what your place and your purpose is as a result of knowing who you are. There are three main ways, and I want to walk you through those real briefly. The first one is called, he calls the look around approach. Okay, the first way you do this is by looking around. And this is the approach that the world has used for most of human history. And in fact, uh, there are still many countries today in more like traditional cultures that this is the way that identity is found. This is the way that you know who you are is by looking around. If you want to know who you are, you look around because your identity and therefore your role in society is determined by the group. Not by you. By the group. It's determined by your family name. You want to know who you are? Tell me who your family is. That's who you are. Uh, it's determined by your ethnicity. It's determined by your class or by your family trade. And the purpose of life is found in fulfilling your responsibility to that role, your responsibility to that group. So you don't ask in those kinds of cultures and in that kind of world, you don't ask, what would make me happy? What am I passionate about? What, what am I really excited about doing? You ask, what does the community need? You ask, what would bring my family honor instead of bringing my family shame? And then whatever the answer is to that, you do that thing. That's how you determine your identity and your role in your life because your actions will flow from the identity. And the identity is this, I belong to this group. I am this people. I am this family. I am this nation. That is who I am. Tim Keller, uh, my favorite preacher and, and writer and all those things, just passed away this last year. He, he tells about his grandpa, grandpa or great-grandpa, I think it was his grandpa, who grew up in a small village in Italy and uh, grew up there in this village in Italy where his dad was a potter, made pots. And his dad before him made pots. And his dad before him made pots. And basically, like hundreds of years back, this family, what they did was they made pots. Uh, except for Tim Keller's grandpa decided he didn't want to make pots. And so he told his dad one day, I don't want to make pots. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something different. And his dad said to him, uh, no, you're not. Uh, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll just go do another job here in town. He's like, no, you're not. No one will hire you to do another job here in this town. Because everybody in this town knows you're a potter. You're part of our family. We make pots. That's what we do. You don't dig holes. You don't farm. You make pots. 
And so that's what you'll do. And so he said, okay, well, fine. Well, I'm going to go to another town. I'm going to move to another town. I'll do something there. And his grandpa said, no, you're not. Because you go to another town, nobody there even knows you. They've already got people to do all their jobs over there. They don't need you, and they don't know what you're good at, and so no one's going to hire you there. He said, basically, son, you've got three options. You can become a priest, you can go into the military, or you can make pots. That's it. And so what Keller's grandpa actually decided to do is he found a fourth option, which was move to America and try to forge a different kind of life for himself. And that's what he did moved to America and worked on some of like the early train subway type things that were being put together then and started a new life in America. And if there's a part of you that hear this, hears that story and thinks to yourself, good for him. Like to, to, to go out and kind of seize life and see, find a different path, forge your own way. If, if you think that inside when you hear that story, that means that you are a part of the second way of finding an identity. The second means of finding an identity, Wax says, is the look in approach. And in this view, your identity and therefore your path in life is determined not by looking around, not by looking at everyone else, not by looking at the group or the community, but by looking in and asking, what do I feel? What do I desire? What does my heart long for? So it doesn't matter in this view what my background is or what my family says I ought to be. What matters is what my heart says. And if I listen to my heart and it tells me to be X or to follow Y path, then I should not let anything stand in the way of that. You are not, in this view, just some predetermined cog that's, that's identity is already kind of handed to you and now you fit in this spot of the machine and you kind of do your thing to make everything work. No, in this view, you are a blank slate, free to become whatever you want to become free to, to follow and to chase your dreams as far as you want to, to determine your own path. And you may be thinking, as you hear me describe this, uh, yeah, that's kind of common sense. That's kind of how life is supposed to work, right? That like we're not just predetermined cogs, that, that, we, that we have a choice in the matter, that we should follow after kind of the passions and excitements inside of ourselves. And, and if you're thinking that in yourself right now, you need to know that the reason you believe that is not because it's common sense. That way of thinking is not common sense for a lot of the world. And it has not been common sense for most of history. And the reason you're thinking that and believing that right now is not necessarily because it's true. The reason you believe that everyone is a blank slate that should be free to choose their own path and follow their dreams and, and work out what their heart has for them is because you've been told to think that. Because you have, from the time you were little, been trained over and over and over again to believe that. Not in like a classroom. Nobody sat you down and said, here's how life works. Everyone is a blank slate. Everyone should determine their own identity by looking into themselves and asking themselves what they feel about themselves or, or where they should go in life or, or, or what they are passionate about. No, nobody sat you down and said that. But this is the story that our culture tells us over and over again. This is in all our movies. This is in all our shows and our books. This is in all our songs that celebrate people who will stand out, people who will go off and do their own thing, people who will live in the way uh, that, that helps them to discover themselves or chase their dreams or, or is true to themselves. Listen, every, actually, if you think, I was thinking about this the other day. Almost every Disney movie, princess movie specifically, take place in a setting of a traditional look-around culture, and the hero is someone who finds a look-inward path. 
So they take place in a setting where everyone is supposed to kind of play their role, and everyone has their role on this island, and everyone knows what they're supposed to do, but I can't find mine. And, and everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Like, I know that all the women are supposed to stay home while the men go off to fight, and I wish I could, like, my reflection would show who I really am inside and all of these things, right? <laughs> like, that's that kind of idea. And then the, the hero emerges as they reject the look-around approach, and as they go on a path of self-discovery, to discover who they truly are, to go off against their family's wishes. No, everyone stays here. We don't sail, okay? Everyone say, hey, keep your gloves on. Don't freeze people. I don't know if that's a traditional approach. That's just, I'm going this. But like, every, like all these rules, like all these things, and, they, and when they go off against that, when they go against the grain, that's when they save the day. That's when they take the hero's quest, that's when something truly happens. As we have been taught from the time that we were little kids that this is the heroic thing to do. This is the way that we ought to try to emulate our lives. But here's a question for you. What if that's not true? What if looking inward, while not a bad thing in itself, I think it's okay to look in and ask some questions. What am I passionate about? What am I excited about? How, how, how has God gifted me? What is my person? I think that's, those are okay questions to ask when I'm thinking about life and those kinds of things. But what if that is a terrible way to determine your identity? The whole idea sounds really freeing. This idea that I can be whatever I want, that I can determine my own path, that there's nothing to stop me. But the reality is that an identity that I create, whether it's through my own achievements or through my own path of self-discovery and looking inward, that kind of identity cannot ever be sustained. And so it will always be fragile. It will always be unstable. And that kind of identity, hear me, is exhausting. You feel it? That kind of identity is exhausting because if I base who I am on the desires and feelings of my heart, the reality is that the desires and feelings of my heart is always changing. I don't want the same things I wanted five years ago. I'm not passionate about the same things I was passionate about three years ago. I don't desire the same things I desired yesterday. Sometimes I have conflicting desires inside of me at the exact same time. And so if I look inward to try to determine who I am based on what I feel, I will find myself constantly being tossed back and forth from one thing to the next, constantly moved and never stopped. If I look to my own achievements and what I can accomplish in life and my dreams, if I build an identity based on my attributes, my characteristics, or my accomplishments, that is an exhausting way of living because the truth is it is like a school project that is never finished because I can never let up if my, if my identity is based on my success, if my identity is based on being the smart one or the funny one or the pretty one. I can never breathe because I've always got to be able to maintain that. I've always got to maintain that level of accomplishment. I've always got to chase that next thing. I've always got to stay ahead of the other person who might be as smart as me or smarter than me. Otherwise, my identity starts to crumble, and so I find myself always running after those things, chasing after that. And if my worth is dependent on my ability to keep performing and to stay ahead then it's going to wear me out. I can never rest. You see this in people, right? 
this constant scramble to find something that makes them feel significant or to maintain their significance through achievement and through accomplishment and through the next success and all of those things. You see this incessant need for affirmation in people. Just someone tell me that I'm enough. Someone tell me that I'm worthwhile. Someone tell me that my existence is justified. Can you see that in people? Can you feel that in yourself? When you lay on your own bed at night, wrestling through who am I, this crushing anxiety of trying to become someone? Because by the way, if it's true that I am free to make myself whatever I want to be and whoever I want to be, guess whose fault it is if I don't accomplish that? There's only one place to look, right here. And that is a crushing weight to try to carry around. That's why the Bible offers a different way, a third way of finding your identity, and that is to look up. That is to let God give you your identity through his son, Jesus. When the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he is writing to them in the middle of a look-around culture. He's writing to them in the middle of a culture where your identity was predetermined by your people group. It was predetermined by your class and by your ethnicity, and there was no like moving around or jumping around on those things. You were basically what you were when you were born, and you were probably going to stay that for the rest of your life. And the Ephesians, their identity was spiritual outsiders. Their identity was the undeserving. Their identity was the godless and the hopeless. But Paul says to them, not anymore. Look at the next verses in our text. Ephesians 2. Verse 19, so then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, Paul says, you are not spiritual outsiders. Now, you are in. Now, you are accepted as citizens of the kingdom of God. And more than that, Paul says, you're actually members of his family, members of his household, adopted sons and daughters of the king, these people who were supposed to be on the outside. Now, sons and daughters of the king and these people who were not allowed to step across the precipice, getting any closer to the temple than they already were, Paul says, you don't need that temple anymore. Because now, through Jesus, you are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God. You don't have to get any closer to the dwelling place of God because he has made you, along with all the rest of God's people, he has built you into the very dwelling place of God. And that identity, Paul says, has got nothing to do with you got nothing to do with what you can find on the inside. Paul's suggestion to them is not you need to break free of this look-around mentality, this look-around identity, and search within. You need to go out and achieve something for yourself. You need to make something for yourself. No, no, no. He says, look up. The identity that you need, the identity that you long for comes to them as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this was a radical teaching in the first century where your identity and your status was pretty much set from the beginning. As I said, there was very little you could do to change that. And here in the middle of this kind of culture, there was this gospel message going out through men like Paul that was saying to people that you are not defined by your class. You are not defined by your background or your skin color or your religious upbringing. You are defined by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so no matter what labels you've had on you from the moment you were born, all of that gets wiped away. All of that is changed, no longer defines you. It is now Jesus that defines you. And that is a life-changing statement to make in the first century. And it's a pretty radical teaching today in a day where identity is so slippery and so elusive and so many people are struggling to try to find something to grab a hold of to make them feel like they they are deserving or like they're worth something to say to those people that you are not defined by how good you are you are not defined by your beauty or lack thereof you are not defined by your grace or by your uh, most uh, your most proudest accomplishments in life. None of those things define you. You are defined by Jesus alone. He is what makes you who you are. Sons of the King. He is what makes you who you are. Daughters of the living God. He is what makes you who you are. God's own workmanship created in Christ for good works. He is what makes you a holy people built together as the very dwelling place of God. This it's life-changing, or at least it should be. I want it to be. I want it to change your life. I want it to change my life. I don't want us to go home tonight and nothing change from the truths that we just read from this. I want this to be something that goes deep in us. I want this to be something that takes root in us and begins to transform us from the inside out. And so let me just give you two words of encouragement as we close out. Two words of encouragement to two different groups of people in this room. First, to those of you who've, who've never really experienced this reality. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never heard this truth. You've never heard the fact that identity can be given to you freely through the Son of God to give you something completely new and completely different that Jesus offers that to anyone who will entrust their lives to him. Or, or maybe you've known that. Maybe you've grown up around this stuff and you've known all that, but you've never really chosen to do that. You've spent much of your life instead trying to create an identity for yourself, to be someone, to forge your own path, to chase down your own dreams, to find your own version of happiness. And if you haven't figured it out yet, what you need to know, if you've not learned it yet, you will. You will someday, trust me, that that kind of life is going to wear you out. It's not going to work. You're going to chase that all day long, and you'll spend the rest of your life chasing it. It is exhausting. It is elusive. It is unstable, an identity like that. Not to mention it's also wrong. It's also sinful. Because we weren't meant to forge our own path. We were meant to walk his we weren't meant to make a name for ourselves. We were meant to live for his name. We weren't meant to grab attention for ourselves and to gain glory for ourselves and to make ourselves known. We were meant to make him known. And when we live in opposition to that, we are living in the very kind of life that separates us from God, that made the Ephesians without God and without hope in this world. And so my encouragement to you tonight is that you would give that up. 
that you would give up all that striving that just that's brought nothing but frustration and anxiety and stress into your life, that you would give that up, that you'd be done with trying to justify your own existence and that you would just surrender that over to Jesus and receive the identity that he freely gives you through grace. If you're not exactly sure how that works, what that looks like, how do I even do that? What's even like the first step in doing that? There are people here who would be thrilled to talk with you about that. Find us afterwards. Our staff will all be up here, or you could probably just ask someone in the seat next to you. You already told them some weird fact about yourself, so it's not too weird to ask these kinds of questions. I mean, talk to somebody. My my encouragement to you is stop striving for an identity you'll never be able to maintain when a better one is freely offered to you. And for the other group in here, to those of you who have already received a new identity in Christ, here's my encouragement to you. Live like that's true. Live like you've got a new identity in Christ. Don't nod your head in agreement tonight and then fall for the same old lies that tell you that your worth is all tied up in whether or not you have a boyfriend or not. Don't don't agree with this stuff tonight. Don't say that this is true and then live your life motivated by trying to impress people all the time or trying to get them to like you. I'm speaking, by the way, to myself just as much as I am to you. This is a trap I fall into so often is to think that my identity is found in the approval of other human beings. My identity is not found in that. Don't make financial success your greatest goal in life that will guide all of your decision-making because your identity is not found in financial success or in human approval, or whether or not you've got a a loved one, a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or any of those things, your identity is found in Jesus, and you need to live like that is true. Now, this is easier said than done, because we are sinful, and it's so easy to to always want to try and forge my own path. It's so easy to always want to try to lift up my own name and try to find a new way for me to live my way, And, and, and it's it's, it's hard to live this way because the culture is constantly telling us to live like that. It's constantly telling us that, and we forget what we know to be true, that my identity is found in him, that I am his son, that I am a new creation, that I am loved by him, that that is what defines me. It is so easy to forget that. So we'll, we'll need to do at least three things. <clears throat> You'll not be able to live out your identity in Christ if you do not surround yourself with solid, godly community that is going to remind you of this truth, that your worth is not found in what you own. Your worth is not found in how good you look. Your worth is not found in what you accomplish. Your worth is found in Christ alone. You'll need people around you that are living in that way so that you don't, you don't get caught up living the way everyone else is living all around you all the time. Second thing you will need is you will need to call out the lies when you see them. When the world constantly tries to lift up to you that this is the path towards happiness, to to follow your heart, to look inside, you don't need to like shout at anybody or anything like that. You don't need to yell at the movie theater screen when you're watching a Disney movie, anything like that. Just notice it. Just take note of the way that the world is trying to move you towards things that are, and by the way, it's okay to watch Moana. You can go watch Moana. You can sing the songs, all those things. All right, that's okay. Just don't buy that that's what life is about. That's all I'm telling you. And take note when the world is trying to convince you otherwise. And then the third thing is this, and this is a big one. Remind yourself of the gospel daily, regularly. You need to find scripture verses that talk about your identity in Christ. Like 1 John 3, 1. Behold how great is the love the Father has for us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Post that somewhere in your house. 
You need to post 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You need to put that somewhere on your dashboard or steering wheel or somewhere where you're going to see that regularly. You need to look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, specifically those last few verses that talk about what you are, citizens of the kingdom, members of God's own household, a holy temple to remind yourself over and over again that that is what defines me, not whether or not I'm dating anyone right now. That that is what defines me, not how successful I am in school or whether I get that internship or anything else. I need to be reminded that. We call this way of living, this is one of our major values that we try to talk about at the table a lot. We call this gospel-centered life, gospel-centered living, which essentially just means that I let Jesus' work and his identity define me. Like what Jesus does defines me and the rest of my life, and not, not what I can accomplish for myself, not what I can find in myself. Gospel-centered life. That's what I want for us. Uh, this is what you've been given in Christ. Don't trade that in for something cheap. Don't trade that in for something you're going to fight your whole life to maintain that's not nearly as great as what Jesus has already offered to you through his own blood, through his own sacrifice, to make you a part of his kingdom and his family. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I know the truth. I know the truth all too well because I have lived it so long that it is one thing to say these things. It is one thing to hear these things and amen them. And it is so much harder to make them go deep down into my heart and to really live from that. And so I pray this, this gift, this good grace for my friends in this room tonight, that for those of you who know you, those of them who know you, oh, Lord, would you make this would you make this truth reality for them? Would you make this truth tangible? Would you remind them daily of, of the fact that their worth does not come from them, uh, that it comes from Jesus? And I pray that you would help them to live like that is true. And then for my friends in here who do not yet know that yet, I pray that you would make this true to them, that you would make this real, that they would be able to see that. But whatever stirring that you may be doing in their heart, that they would listen to that and come close and draw near to what you may be saying. God, I ask you to take your word and bring fruit from it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.